Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about disasters, fires, (laughs) floods, Mm -hmm. storms. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if we'll get into locusts. Uh, It's possible. Uh, And so to discuss all this... um, we have our, our resident uh, apocalypse expert, <laughs> Ray Lehman, Hi. back on the show. Uh, third time appearance, which I think puts you uh, is one of the, the top repeat guests for Urbane Cowboys. I'm uh, honored. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll go back, Ray. And uh, uh, Ray is the uh, head of R Street's finance insurance and trade program or fit mm-hmm. um and uh so but although he personally you personally focus on the the i in fit the insurance like, yeah that's fair to say i guess yeah although you do get into i guess well there's some finance that involves insurance and then that. Mm-hmm. yep but uh we, we have some finance projects we work on as well um and these days that is also mostly on me yeah. yeah. So uh, let's. Uh, I want to start with uh, the fires. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll do we'll, we'll do earth, wind, and fire, but we'll go in reverse order. Sure. Um, so obviously, there's been a lot of attention to the fires along the West Coast, particularly in California, but also I have some friends in Oregon mm-hmm. who got. Uh, evacuated, and I also have a friend in Washington State who uh, had a couple weeks ago, you know, taken a, a a trip to somewhere and was trying to get back home and could not find a way around to drive around a wall of fire. <laughs> he had to yeah. go on side roads, uh, and I, I of course told him that you don't you don't want to try to get around the wall of fire. You want to go the other direction. That was my advice. But um, so anyway, uh, these are huge fires. Um, it, it's a, there's all sorts of debate about what the causes are, the contributing causes. Uh, is it climate change? Yeah. Is it uh, forest management? Obviously, I think that there's a there's an element of both things mm-hmm. there along, along with other stuff. But what what is kind of what are we looking at in terms of the overall impact of that from an insurance standpoint? Sure. So the, in terms of what has made the fires worse, because they are worse than they used to be. um, Those two factors matter a lot. Uh, The, the forest management, when we, when we say there's been poor forest management, it's actually been almost, almost 30 years that there have been, there's actually been better forest management, but the legacy of what happened before that is still with us, where if you look at photos, California is, is most notable in this respect. Uh, if you look at photos from the early days of photography, the 1900s, um, there were very few trees in the areas that we call forests. Um, there, it was, it was pretty patchy, and because there were regular natural wildfires that would clear clear out brush um, and uh, and take down these trees. These trees are also not 
uh, ones that are of interest to the logging industry, which is what would ordinarily happen to in terms of human intervention to uh, to 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 thin out uh, old growth. Um, the trees where we're getting uh, wildfires are, are small diameter. They're not really commercially valuable. Um, so we, for many years, practiced a no tolerance policy to wildfire, um, where it was just all about suppression. Um, this this goes in with Smokey Bear, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that like the the most important thing is to put out wildfires whenever they start, which meant that the growth that that uh, that we had there was less resilient to fire. Um, the fire is a natural uh, phenomenon, and uh, when when you intervene in that way and, and make it less resilient, now when there is a fire, you have much more dense um, uh, uh, forest, and you can't practice good forest management, which would mean things like controlled burns, because a controlled burns will quickly get out of control in California. You can do it in, in the East. Um, and, and we do here in Florida, we have them and, you know, there, there's, we were talking recently about the New Jersey pine barrens. There are controlled burns that are done there. Um, and that does help, uh, uh, mitigate, uh, some of the extremes. Um, California is like too far gone for that. Um, so, uh, what you have instead are projects like literally by hand, um, thinning trees, uh, thinning, thinning uh, forests, um, where the, where there is forest, right? Like, so actually I, what I should make clear is that not everywhere that has wildfire is forest. Uh, a lot of it is shrub and chaparral and, right. um, and, and not like environmentally sensitive either. It's not like land where there's, you know, uh, thriving ecosystems. Um, it's just what we would call scrub, <laughs> you know, um, there's rats, <laughs> right? Wood rats live there, but, uh, not, not too many other things that we're, we're trying to protect. Um, so that's, that's all true. And then, then you have the impact of, of rising temperatures, which, which are, you know, without question, helping to like, you have longer droughts, longer dry seasons, um, there, that makes the, the woodlands much more fragile. So that's like on the, on the side of what's causing fires, what's making fires worse. The other half of that equation is it used to be, and this is like much more recent, that even really big, really devastating fires did not have an impact on all that many people because not many people lived in the area that uh, was exposed to wildfire, what's called the wildland urban interface, the WUI. Um, that, was not a, that was not a place where people, where there was very much development. We have so constrained the ability in a lot of these places like California, like Oregon, um, to build in the urban area uh, that just for affordability's sake, more and more people get pushed out and they're getting pushed out into, into the wooey. Um, that's the only place to go. Uh, now, what, one thing that is interesting about that, uh, Josiah and I have talked about this in the past, there's a difference between fire and flood uh, in terms of what more development means. In, in flood, more development mean, always means more flood risk because the water is going to go somewhere. And so if you put down 
concrete over what would otherwise be open land that would absorb water, um, you're going to magnify the risk. And the more people who move into that area, the more the risk uh, is going to be borne by the people who live there. That's not exactly true of wildfire. There's kind of like a bell curve where like when no one lives there, um, there's no wildfire risk. But when a lot of people live there, there's also not really any wildfire risk because there's not any trees. <laughs> so if you get rid of the trees, <laughs> then you do get rid of the risk by and large. You can still have some embers that fly, but the, the major wildfire risk is from low density development. So if, if you kind of, you have to make some choices about like go big or go home. Like if we're going to have development here, we're going to have a ton of development here. That's not what why people move to the forest. They like they like the fact that they don't see their neighbors. They like the fact that they're surrounded by trees. But that's what's creating the risk. I remember after one of the the Houston floods, reading all these national publications that we basically needed to bulldoze large portions of of Houston and never rebuild again. So if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, you basically just want to bulldoze a bunch of forests. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> Not all of them, uh, but some, yeah. Like, I, I mean, to give an example, the Inland Empire, uh, Riverside and, and San Bernardino, California, it's very populated areas. Between the two of them, there's about 4.6 million people. Um, so it's, it's significant, um, but it's really Spar- those counties are really sparsely populated in terms of density. Um, and, and that's an area where you can, you know, zone areas to, to have higher, higher density development and, and people would be safer. Uh, and, and it's not, it's not only, um, it's not only like millionaire mansions in the woods, although a million dollars doesn't go very far in California. Um, there, there's also like lots of places that are, you know, largely mobile homes and so forth. And, and those places could also be more densely developed. What, uh, so first, uh, it, this yeah. is probably just a lack of imagination of scale, but mm-hmm. you talk about problem with, California is the it's gotten over the forests have gotten over uh, overly dense yeah overly dense over the course yeah. of 100 years so like after this year aren't the forests all burned I mean how no. much <laughs> how much more <laughs> can there be well this, I mean this is the thing about the West in general is if you look at a map and then look at how much of it is federal land right like so. Basically, everything west of the plains, um, most of those states are mostly federal land, right? Like, if the extremes being like Utah and Nevada, where like less than 10% of the land is in private hands and the rest is all federal. Um, So, there's a ton. (laughs) Those are really large states, and there's there are really large areas of mostly woodland. Um, and there, there's plenty more to burn. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. Um, so just, I have a couple, couple of mm-hmm. things on the, on the response side. One is, um, and this was, uh, a big issue in past years. I don't think it's been 
such an issue this year directly. Um, mm-hmm. and that has to do with the the power lines and mm-hmm. uh, power companies. Yeah, uh, and I say so in the in the past. Uh, there have been, I mean, uh, companies have gotten, uh, the utilities have gotten sued and, mm-hmm. and charged uh, mm-hmm. for being responsible for the instigation of some of these fires. And in response, they've shut down power uh, to a lot of places. Yep. Uh, I don't, I don't know that they've had to do that uh, much this time. Perhaps they have, although the whole yeah, state. Really- Kind of had to, the whole state has kind of had to have rolling blackouts yep. for other reasons. Um, but so you know what 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 is the deal with that? Because that also mm-hmm. that seems to be um, maybe not a mm-hmm. uh, I, I I don't know if it's a uniquely California issue, but it definitely seems to be uh, an it's issue. Mo- yeah, yeah, it's mostly a California issue. What the issue is in California is that. Utilities are granted eminent domain powers when they lay their transmission lines. Um, And because of those eminent domain powers, they are considered like a governmental or quasi-governmental entity. And so their liability is effectively no fault. Um, If there is a, it's not fully no fault. Um, If they can prove, for instance, that someone actually sabotaged uh, the transmission lines uh, and that person is responsible, um, then they could get out of fault. Um, but in basically all other cases, they are they are held to a very high standard of accountability um, for uh, the safety of their transmission lines. And if they cause fire, they are, uh, they are held on a... Generally, what will happen is... Um, Properties that are are in the area affected by a fire that was started by a transmission line will make a claim with their homeowner's insurance. Their homeowner's insurance will pay that claim, and then those insurance companies will sue the utility uh, for subrogation, and the utility that will go to court and the utility will probably have to pay out uh, for the, co- the damage. Um, that should be... Uh, because utilities are monopoly in California, that should be on a going forward basis, uh, just priced in is something that you can capture from your from your rate payers, um, the, the, the cost of the liability. Um, the problem in a place like California is so the rates are, are controlled by the, the Public Utility Commission, which has not allowed a lot of rate increases. Insurance rates are controlled by the insurance department, which is not allowed a lot of rate increases. So there are costs and there's no one to pay them because they're not not no side of this equation is allowed to collect the money necessary to make the fixes that they would need to make. And is that just um, a, a matter of. Are the are the commissioners elected or appointed in California? I should know. I believe this. I believe I'm not an expert in public utility commission uh, 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 reg- regulation in California, but I believe that they are appointed by the governor. But I could be wrong about that. I, it may, I, I it, you're right. I'm going to say I'm going to say yes, they're appointed. And if uh, later it turns out I'm wrong, maybe I'll edit edit that out uh, so yeah. I look smarter. Yes, um, the, ins- the insurance commissioner is elected. 
um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Insurance elected. Uh, the the PUC folks are appointed, but either way, yeah, uh, under still- significant political pressure not to right. raise rates. Yeah. Yes. And and in the case of uh, PG&E, which was the largest utility in California, they because of their liability for the wildfires in 2017-2018, they ended up filing bankruptcy um, and have just recently come up with a, a resolution scheme. They still they still exist as a going concern, but uh, their shareholders had had been mostly wiped out. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, very often, uh, you can come back from bankruptcy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although that, uh, just as an aside for the te- Texas listeners, there's a, there's a famous, uh, cafeteria chain in Texas Luby's, mm-hmm. uh, that has, the owning company has filed for bankruptcy. I think, I think they're planning on just shutting them all down, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's kind of uh it's a fond memory uh that I have from my youth is going to Luby's yeah. and uh having their, their Salisbury steak. And, uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway so, uh, so I haven't actually talked about the insurance piece of this yet. Yeah, really. yeah, okay. uh, like, yeah. So this is where we are. California has a as an insurance regulation system. Um, that is generally considered the most stringent in the country. It is very hard to change rates, not just to increase them. It's hard to lower them also. You need, you need approval of the insurance commissioner before you make any changes. Um, but before it even goes to the insurance commissioner, uh, those changes are, are advertised and there's public hearings and there are uh, what are called public interveners, which are, um, you know, Consumer advocates, uh, I would note cynically, most of these consumer advocates are trial attorneys. Um, they are paid by the, the in this case, the insurance department to represent the interests of insurance consumers. I, I would disagree with that characterization of what they do, um, but they, they stand in, in the way of any sort of proposed changes in rates or forms. Um, uh, just as routine, uh, as as this, the filibuster has become in the Senate, it is every rate filing and form filing will be objected to by consumer groups, one in particular, um, and so it becomes a years long process to make any changes, and and also what you can consider, uh, what is what is considered legitimate in. Uh, filing an insurance rate in California is really uh, there's a formula and it doesn't it can't be altered. Um, so, for instance, it used to be that the way insurance, you know, actuarial tables were uh, written, where it was just past experience. Whatever whatever data you had of the past, you assume the future will be like the past. Um, the problem is if climate change means that conditions are worse in the future than they have been in the past. Uh, you can't reflect that uh, with with actuarial tables. You need something that's forward looking, and so we've developed over the last forty years computerized models of weather and um, and disasters um, that can be used are used say by reinsurers um, to to model what what future rates should be. Uh, California doesn't allow those to be included uh, or considered. 
They also don't allow the cost of reinsurance to be considered. So if, if reinsurance companies using those models say um, this is a riskier area than it used to be and you're going to have to pay more for reinsurance if you're going to write insurance in those areas, that can't be reflected. Um, so that all contributes to suppressing insurance rates, uh, which means if you can't raise rates and there's still demand, um, then the alternative is a lot of companies will simply choose not to write insurance, um, in the at least in the wildfire prone areas. Now, in California, they gave in 2018, a bill was passed that gave the insurance commissioner the authority to halt non-renewals um, for some period of time, for about a year. Uh, that's going to expire at the end of this year, his order. Um, and when that does, what, what has happened this year through the wildfires is that if you were trying to sell your home, you would find that the buyer cannot get coverage. And so you're not going to have a closing. Um, because the, the real estate transaction can't go through without the home being insured. Um, but people who, who were in their homes did not have to worry too much. They could worry about some rate increases. There have definitely been rate increases, but not to the extent that probably the market would, would demand. Uh, so when the commissioner's uh, authority expires, you're going to have a true full, full-on crisis um, of just policies being dropped, Companies just deciding we don't want to touch California anymore. The legislature had an opportunity to deal with this this year. It was, they had a compromise piece of legislation that I helped work on um, that basically said in these counties that are getting a lot of wildfires, insurance companies will will be sort of part of a public-private part, partnership. They will, if, um, if they agree to the conditions that allow them to use those factors, the, the catastrophe models and the cost of reinsurance, then they agree to take all comers, right? So anybody who wants a policy will get written. Um, and that was a, an amendment to Prop 103. Um, uh, amendments to Prop 103 require two-thirds majorities in both houses, and they also require uh, that they forward the interest of the proposition, um, forward the purpose. Uh, so they were on their way. They were getting there. They, they did pass um, through the assembly with two-thirds majority. They passed through a couple Senate committees unanimously. And then it was just at the last minute, uh, whatever happened, lawmakers chickened out um, and decided not. To, to finish it. So that that could have been at least a partial solution to the crisis that's coming. Uh, they chose not to take any solution. And so the crisis is still coming. <laughs> we will almost certainly at the end of this year, you will be hearing stories out of California about how no one can get homeowners insurance because they're just not allowed to charge the rates that are necessary. Right. So uh, sorry, do you have anything else on that? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a, I guess I have a question for, for really for either one of you, because I think that Josiah, you just, uh, you just uh, co-authored a piece uh, about the, the fires as well. 
is let me ask this uh, sort of apart from the insurance piece mm-hmm. uh, if we take a step back and say we think that California may be mismanaging the situation and and uh, is there anything that the federal government ought to be doing that should be doing that could reasonably be doing to intervene to 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 prevent the fires to mitigate the risk is there anything that that would be an appropriate federal response yeah, well, more than half of the, the forest land in California is federal land. Um, so that's the most important thing. Um, when, when the president uh, blames California for its poor management of its forests, California actually has no authority over most of its forests. Um, only about, I think, 15% is state land. Um, about 55% is federal land. The rest is private. Um, so that's the most obvious place the federal government could could deploy resources is in, in its own forest management um, and and that uh, is is not something that uh, I think the current administration has a tremendous amount of interest in doing but um, it's it's available I like to blame Newsom for the problem <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Josiah, do you care to weigh in on that? Uh, as far as what the federal government could be doing, um, no, I think. I mean, I think that's probably it as far as uh, that goes. There, I'm, I'm sure that there are reforms as far as uh, the way mm-hmm. federal disaster insurance is structured mm-hmm. um, that could apply here. Uh, as well as generally, but, uh, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. And I, I would say there's definitely like mitigation, uh, grants and loans that can be made available. Um, in, in the case of wildfire, it's, it's not totally clear how effective mitigation is, uh, since it's such a community, uh, concern. Um, it's not, an individual property will still get consumed um, if there is a full, full raging wildfire. But you can, you create what's called a defensible space around the property, which means you clear brush and, and trees. Um, you make sure that you don't have wood roofs and you don't have wood decks. Um, those are all things that are, and there are certain materials that are um, uh, better and worse. Uh, ceiling, uh, attics so that you know embers can't get in. That's a, that's a major cause of, of wildfire. Um, those are all things that uh, you could help homeowners to do, um, either by lending them the money or giving them the money. Um, but as I said, it's it's not. Uh, when it comes to hurricanes, mitigation seems to do the best. Hurricanes and other windstorms, mitigation seems to do the best. Uh, wind damage, you know, the, making sure your your home is really tight and able to joists are, are well attached and able to resist major winds. Um, flood is mostly a matter of raising your home. Fire is tougher. You know, there are things you can do to make it less likely, but there's nothing you can do to completely harden your home from fire. Other than build it out of concrete, I guess, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Um <laughs> It's like the three little pigs, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I just want to briefly switch gears to talk about 
uh, flooding water yeah. as opposed uh-huh. to fire. Uh, yep. Because just recently, uh, the Flood Resiliency and Taxpayer Savings Act mm-hmm. uh, was filed, and and uh, you have written about your appreciation for that. So, w- w- what is that act? First of all, let me just say that it does not appear to me yeah. that the Flood Resiliency and Taxpayer Savings Act spells out a word which no is, no no means that it i mean i i'm not sure if it's constitutional <laughs> yeah. to have a piece of legislation that doesn't yeah. spell out a word or something so mm-hmm. uh sure but, but leaving that aside mm-hmm. what, what's the deal? what is it um essentially if you go back a few years president obama had a um by a executive order issued uh, what was called the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. And it said when federal money is being spent, uh, primarily on federal property, but also on you know, things like, like HUD grants and so forth, when federal money is being spent, then the, the project must conform with uh, flood risk management. So that generally means like what's called base flood elevation is the, the area to which you expect a flood to rise. Um, in, in the case of the federal flood standard, it was you had to build it two feet above the base flood elevation um, so that you know your, your property wouldn't uh, get destroyed by the flood. Um, this was not mostly private property. It was mostly government property. Uh, it was, it's definitely most, in, uh, most crucially important that uh, first responders have uh, headquarters and operations units that are not themselves going to be destroyed by a flood in the middle of the flood, since they are the people who have to respond to the flood risk in the first place. Um, so that was implemented in, in 2018. It was, I think the executive order was, no, no, I'm sorry, uh, 2016. The executive order was in 2015. Um, in 2017, uh, President Trump repealed the order. Um, uh, if you want a bit of trivia, the the announcement that he was repealing the order um, was the press conference at which he noted that there were good people on both sides <laughs> in Charlottesville, Virginia. That was what that press conference was actually about, <laughs> was repealing the federal flood stand, uh, standard executive order by from President Obama. One of the problems with the President Obama order is not the order itself, but how it was managed, because it should not really be a controversial order except he he pitched it as a climate change related order which immediately gets certain people's backs up um and and there was no reason that this had anything to do with climate change in fact it was just what we imagine flood risk is today not what we think it's going to be in the future um and it's a taxpayer savings measure you know the whole point is that we shouldn't have to rebuild federal property over and over again with taxpayer money if we can do it right the first time. Um, so that was repealed by the Trump administration. There have been various attempts to reimpose it uh, administratively. And uh, uh, there are some agencies that have have started to look at it or at least take a version that uh, create an internal version that is, is at least we will consider flood risk when we build, um, even if it's not to a numerical standard. 
anyway, this is probably the better way to do it is through legislation. Um, once upon a time, Congress made laws and the executive <laughs> executed them. <laughs> that, that sounds crazy today, but that was how the system was supposed to work. I think uh, I remember something <laughs> about that in school. Right. Uh, so that's what this does, is it, uh, it, it would, through legislation, create a flood, federal flood risk management standard for, for any projects that the federal government is, is financing. Okay, I I have one more topic, Doug. Unless you have something you want to talk about, floods or storms or nope, nothing else on this. Okay. Uh oh, I will I, I will ask. Yeah. This Doug is that you know recently there were some news reports that the Houston water system was infected by brain eating amoebas. Ah, right. And so I. Yeah. Just, we get those all the time in Florida. <laughs> well, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have noticed I've had a little bit of a headache lately, but yeah. uh, but you know, actually, Ray's uh, what Ray just said is probably about right. That we get these type of stories every once in a while, but they're usually, as in this case, closer to the coast. So this was this is probably almost an hour south of where I am. And I'm on a, in a suburb on the south side of Houston, and this was probably a good 45 minutes south of us. Um, it, it happens. It's usually temporary, um, obviously unfortunate. Boil your water, and uh, and it'll usually get restored fairly quickly. But, uh, I mean, it's not a good thing, but it, it, it happens. <laughs> All right. Well, you seem to be uh, uh, cogent enough. <laughs> no, I'm gonna. I'm gonna assume. Okay, so um, unless Doug, you have anything else on floods or storms, I do have one uh, final lighter topic. Hmm. I think that uh, yeah, but we do have to mention uh, Mac Davis and okay. Ray's batting average of <laughs> uh, coming on shows and, and country singers dying. Well, Sorry about well, that. We can, we can end on that or, or however, whichever order you prefer. Okay, sure. So I want to switch gears now because we are in election season. We're in the final stretch. And that means everybody has their prediction model of what's going to happen with mm-hmm. the election. Uh Nate Silver at 538, he's got his own, he's got his model. The Economist has a model. A uh, bunch of bunch of people have, have models. Some of them uh, better than others. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to name any names, but some of them mm-hmm. better than others. Um, and you, the other day, uh, released your own election yeah. model uh, yeah. for 2020. So why don't you just tell us w- what that is about and how that works? Uh, sure. My model is I make uh, I make the assumption that Joe Biden will win all of the states where there are more dogs than cats. I'm sorry, more cats than dogs. And uh, that Donald Trump will win all of the states where there are more dogs than cats. Um, and I think if you look at my map, it's pretty close. Uh, not exact, but pretty close to what most people think the uh, Think that the uh, the the battleground states uh, how they will turn out. Um, you see, uh, the Northeast and the West, uh, Florida are are cat states, and uh, most of the South, including Texas and uh, Montana, 
are dog states. Um, that that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is yeah. So I'm gonna, it's interesting in two respects. First, uh, I mean, it is there is an intuitive appeal that if you ask me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is a dog person more likely to be for Trump uh, than a cat person, right, and vice versa? You know, I can kind of see that uh, just sure. going off general stereotypes. Um, yeah. Uh, not being a dog or cat person myself, uh, but you know, I have a kind of sense of, of what they are. And then, if you look at the map, it is pretty interesting. It is interesting that it kind of divides that way. There, there are a couple of states like uh, I think the Dakotas are yeah. cat states. Yes. Uh, you wouldn't think of. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I think. I don't know if it has to do something to do with weather or what. Um, so I I have some theses here, and I can I mean the first thing that's important to disclose is where the data comes from. It comes from the Amer- American Veteran Veterinary uh, Medical Association. So the the counts of dogs and cats is dependent entirely on who is bringing their dog and or cat to the vet. Um, so one thing that uh, vets will tell you. Is that um, in the north, the northeast, and the and the west are known for having more veterinary care in general. Uh, th- those owners are more likely to bring their animals into the vet, um, and that is most obvious uh, with cats. That cats are cats are generally not brought to the vet in the south. Dogs are for neutering purposes, um, and you know dogs have have many more regular uh, checkups than cats do. So that can be one of the reasons that dogs show up more heavily in the South. The other thing that's kind of a confounding variable, I don't know how true this is, but this is what some people have told me, is that in that Northern portion of the country, your Wyoming, your Dakotas, your Idaho, rabies is a significant issue. Um, And so, Barn cats that are effectively feral are nonetheless vaccinated um, because they they you know they're whether or not they're pets or 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 wildlife is is a matter of debate but they will still frequently be vaccinated for rabies um, and so they'll show up as as being pets and being owned by people so I think those are all interesting theories. Um, there probably is some difference uh, in ownership. It's also like everywhere there are more homes that own, more households that have a dog than households that have a cat. Many have both, and households that have cats are much more likely to have multiple cats than multiple dogs. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, although you can't have you can't have both, I suppose. Yeah, I um, have I have three cats and one dog, so. This is a this is a Biden household in my mind. <laughs> I give a kitty kick away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, all right. Well, uh, on oh oh, uh, Doug, you had you had another lighter note that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so it it occurs to me that uh, uh, just yesterday, um, country artist Mac Davis died. Um, I personally went to, um, Texas tech for law school, which is in Lubbock, Texas, for those of you who don't know. And, and I, uh, and I recall sort of learning about his music because there was all these t-shirts around, 
uh, where people, you know, the teachers said, um, happiness is Lubbock in the, in your rear view mirror, which was a line from one of his songs. And, and it occurs to me that uh, the last time uh, you were on the show, that one of our favorite singers, mm-hmm. uh, I think we both shared a, a lot of affection for John Prine. And mm-hmm. I, I'm now really scared for country singers in general <laughs> to have you back on the program. It seems like the, maybe Sorry there's a correlation. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I can't speak to that, but, uh, it does. Maybe it's just that there's a lot of country singers. And so there's always someone going to die. I, I, I'm, I'm really concerned about Willie Nelson at the moment. So <laughs> we probably, we probably should wait to have you back on the yeah. show. Well, the, I, I guess I would say, yeah. Doug, is that the deaths occur before Ray comes on, not the other way around. That's so true. That's true. You can't keep him on. You can't keep, Willie alive by just not having him on, uh, you know, I think, I think the causation runs the other way. Yeah. I would, I would recommend anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, Cause my primary Mac Davis memory is he was on the Muppet show when I was a kid performing baby don't get hooked on me, uh, which he, the, the setup is that he's singing it underwater to a Miss Piggy, who is a mermaid. Um, is it the hook, hook part, like fish? So uh, that's worth checking out on YouTube. Um, he also wrote a bunch of Elvis songs, including In the Ghetto and uh, A Little Less Conversation. All right. Which which is a great way to end a, end a conversation. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Anytime.